Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. My guest on Talk Design today is Charles McBride, known as Chuck, by the way. So Chuck is a professor at UTA, and I just had a little lesson from Chuck on for everybody who isn't in Texas. That means Arlington. So UT, University of Texas, Arlington. And that I also learned that the mothership of UT is in Austin, and it's not called UTA in Austin. It's just called UT. So I had a little education on Texas history there. So I know that most of our listeners are based in the US. With that, I'm sure you all knew what I just learned. Anyway, we'll see. (laughs) Exactly. Now, Chuck also has a practice, which is McBride Studio. And he's very interested in Passive House, so we're going to talk about that, as well as just what happens in the teaching and what happens in commercial world. So, Chuck, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Man, I I did enjoy learning that little bit about UT because I feel one step closer to being somebody who's from Texas. (laughs) (laughs) something to aspire to yes (laughs) i don't know how many years you've been going to texas or been around texas other than you've lived there for five years and you came from new york originally so with that something in your childhood or whenever somewhere in this journey of life something inspired you to be an architect i'm sure you could have chosen a lot of other things what was it and where did that sort of come from what happened that you became an architect? I grew up in the suburbs um, and some friends of mine and I used to pretty frequently just hop on the bus and go downtown because it was more fun. Into New so York I, City. I grew up you in say downtown. Oh, Rochester. I, I, okay, and cool. so that's, it's not New yeah. York City. Yeah. Um, it's upstate. I'm like your parents let you just go into town on the bus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would do that with my kids today, but I but back in the seventies and eighties, it seemed okay. There was yeah. a bus, and you could go downtown, and the downtown actually existed. There were things to do, and go to the record stores and look at vinyl. Yeah, and so we we would do that because it was just more interesting, and so I really liked cities. And I didn't know what that meant until I think one of my teachers in middle school started talking to me about architecture and that kind of clicked. And so that's that's where I put it together for the first time. Yeah. Because how, how old are you in middle school? Like, what, seventh, eighth grade? That's maybe 13, 14 13. years old. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. And I always like to draw too. I don't get to draw as much as I used to, but it just made sense. Mm-hmm. And so I always find it fascinating that whatever people do, somebody becomes a doctor, a lawyer, or a carpenter, or whatever it is, but especially people that are in offices that don't necessarily, we don't necessarily see. Like if if somebody's a builder, we see it. If somebody's 
laying drains. We see it. All those things that we visually see, I get. You get your car fixed. So kids are taken in to get the, see where the car gets fixed kind of thing. But then there's all this stuff that happens that we don't see. And we don't brush into it anyway. I did some work with Airbus, the big airplane maker. And I remember going for a few years. And I remember my first time walking through one of the sites and it was in Bremen in Germany. And there was office after office after office with a person sitting in the office, one person. (laughs) And I remember turning to the lady I was working with and saying, what are they doing? (laughs) And she's well, they're working. And I'm like, on what? (laughs) And I'm talking literally, and Bremen's not a big site, hundreds of offices with one person sitting in them working on something. Now, we're going to presume it was building an aircraft or charging money out or put it, taking money in or something like that, but none of these were the accounts department. These were all some sort of engineering system that people were working in. Yeah. And I'm like, how many people does it take? What, what has to happen? And you go, this company's got 80,000 employees and that's the employees. Then there's the people who are subcontractors and stuff. So with architecture, we may see the result, but we don't see the drawing. We don't see the person who drew it or um, conceptualized it. It's got, they're hidden in an office somewhere. They're, they go to work in a building and or at home or wherever. We don't see them doing the task. So then we discover this at some point, maybe through education. It's, yeah, I didn't know it growing up. I mean, you don't really you know what it is just a little bit because you hear the name. It's like architect. Okay, well, architects, they design buildings. So, Yeah, but, but then who designs how- bridges? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Architects, if they're lucky, get to design br- uh, bridges. I'd love to be one of them. <laughs> when you grow up, <laughs> but, maybe when you grow yeah, up. Chuck. Exactly. Not yet. My yeah. next lifetime. Yeah. But, but no, you don't understand, or I didn't understand how big the sort of the system was that. Yeah, that creates something. Yeah. And how involved it is and how many different hands are. In, part of the process but because you get this sort of howard rourke view it's oh the architect he's quickly can do this and then hand it off and the building gets built but obviously that's not the case and it's not even close to the truth yeah yeah. and the schools are are getting better at at making that more known to students but even coming out of university, you don't necessarily know that until you've had some experience in the office. Yeah. Well, I, it's fascinating. I ask this question of a lot of people, obviously. And my favorite, I'm not going to name him, somebody can find it if they're really interested, is he said it came to that careers choosing day. And he's gosh. I just don't know what I want to do. I've got no idea. I'm going to have to go. I've got, I've got to choose. I'm at the end of the, I've taken the rope at, right at the very last thread. 
I've got to make a choice. And my parents are expecting me to make a choice and I don't want to do what they want to do. And and he says, so I'm looking down the list of jobs I could choose. And I come all the way down and there's, I'm in the A still, and I hit architecture. And he's right, that's people who draw things. And he said, I like drawing. And that's people who, they make, buildings and stuff and he goes okay so he ticks architecture (laughs) (laughs) he's still an architect to this day and loves what he does but he was like i'll just do that because i can always change i can always change next year so it was like this decision but it was really the first one he had an idea of what it did in all the a's i don't know what's above that list (laughs) but that was the one he went i can quantify that So classic. If you have a an interest in just that kind of craft or making or drawing, that's important. I we ask the students the same thing these days because sometimes that that simple approach to just saying I I like to draw, maybe architecture would be okay. That's not really wrong. No. When you're 18 years old, that's not really the the wrong thing. Because if you enjoy drawing or building or just thinking about craft or assembly or whatever, then that might be enough. When you put it back to those really simple terms, it takes me back to when people talk about, and in Germany, you still have this system, but you're a master builder. And from being a master builder, you end up, essentially as an architect you have the same qualification as an architect but you've come through the trade system to do that and then there's the people who have done sat in the classrooms and learned how to do it but not actually ever manufactured it or built it or put it together and that that sort of you know you you as you described like if they come from that thing of I like to draw, I like to think of space and I like to think of how that might work. And then there's the also the person who comes from it from I want to actually create this thing and what's the disciplines it takes to put that together and actually map it down on a piece of paper before I put it together. Yeah. It's a, an interesting kind of collision. And there's schools that, are very big on this hands-on approach and there's like where it's actually they're building stuff and there's schools that are very, that's far flung. I remember talking with Tom Kundig and he was saying to me about there's whole pieces of um, the training that are just built now around that this thing won't even be physically built. It'll just be built in model forms and it'll be used for gaming and it will be used for all these things. And so now you've got that sort of thing as well. It's not necessarily ever going to be a building or a structure standing somewhere other than in a digital form. So where's that collision come now in teaching? That's a great question. It's a, I think it's a true observation the it, it if there's teachers that recognize that or know that there's you know that kind of path for students then 
I can see that being more and more popular. Students today obviously are much more fluid and comfortable using software that can do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I joke with some of my colleagues that at this point I'm the old guy now in the room and naturally I'm drawn to talking about the Pencil old-fashioned and paper. analog kind of approach, like drawing and building and making stuff by hand. And But I, I, I try hard not to come across as somebody that's against the innovation that is Yeah. so important. Yeah, it's Still the understand. only thing that move, moves us forward. Like, I look at in Texas, you've got Icon 3D, who probably are leading the race, I'd say, globally on 3D printing. They're certainly, if they're not leading it, they're one of the main players at the front. Sure. With hundreds of people employed in their 3D, in their 3D printing, and they've got a big mission that they're pushing out to, to achieve in housing and I suppose yeah the architect gets to draw the house or the buildings the whatever and then the machine takes over there's still people driving it but it takes over it it plots it it uses satellites etc to plot everything just like you do when now when you go and harvest a field of wheat or you flatten the land for a subdivision or sculpt land as they call it it's done by somebody in an office and then the machine's got all the plotting goes into its computer and somebody steers it around the park or really just monitors it a bit like an airplane it Yeah. can take off and land without a pilot that's easy yeah Yeah. the pilot's the person who talks to the passengers And makes them feel like somebody's in control. <laughs> well, it, it's important to encourage the students to see this as, as sort of positive innovation, which Mm-hmm. I, I think it is. And it's more likely that you see, like I said, the old guys or the sort of the older generation anyway, being more skeptical of how production really works. Mm-hmm. And so you look at the 3D printed houses and full size technologies like that. Mm And it, it's the stuff that we'd been talking about as theoretical only 20 or 30 years ago. -hmm. But now one it's, one day one day they'll be able to do this yeah, and everybody nodded and said, yeah, <laughs> okay, but now we're here and let's just focus you know, on where we're at it's sort of, can we focus on where we're at and do better with the technology? And there's obviously there's people that are focused on making it a kind of a profitable thing for their purposes, but hopefully it's a, it goes beyond that, right? Hopefully it's a positive change for what the building industry requires and what the design industry, how the design industry thinks or how the, how we're teaching students to think about prefabrication or digital technologies That's, that's critical. And so seeing this kind of one-to-one -one 3D printed house technology
is fantastic. And I, I don't, it's hard, I think, to impress upon the students how radical it, it is to see it happening. Especially because they don't have the time, like they might be 18, 20. But they haven't seen or experienced and seen the old system. You go back to my fascination in life is human endeavor. And you look at something like, use the Hoover Dam as an example. Oh, oh, and even I saw something the other day and it was a guy walking around on what probably was the Empire State Building. And he's walking around on the beams. I don't know how many hundreds of feet in the air, but he's not tethered. He's not harnessed. He's walking around. There is no rails. He's just walking on beam tops and climbing around pillars and shimmying up a couple. But he is well off the ground. And people look at it and go, oh, that's nuts. But people actually did that all day long. And he probably stood up there with a massive hammer and put hot rivets into something that somebody was heating in another thing and a gas burner. I don't know how it goes together, but like I'm going human endeavor to create stuff. And with the 3D printing, which of course I'm, I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Let's see where we can go with it. Mm-hmm. Human endeavor, the, the, it, we're, we're handing it over to machinery at some point. We, we hand it over to machinery and that happens in everything, cars, one time there was a coach worker who hammered out all the tin and all the whatever it is, the steel that they were going to make the car from and shaped it all over molds. And then there became presses and then there's Tesla. And the, mm-hmm. the whole thing's made out of as few parts as possible and it's chink and there's all that part all put together and it's spot welded. Even then there's, there's the idea is, as fewer joints as possible. And I have a yeah. great friend here in Australia who makes fry pans, amongst other things, but fry pans. And he has created a fry pan with a long handle on it that's all out of, say, stainless steel. And it is all pressed by very clever presses to make that pan in one piece, just like as if it was cast iron. Hmm. Whereas otherwise, you get a pan base and then you get a handle. And the handle on this is part, it's all integrated. And, and so you look at that and you go, this is just machinery you know, taking, not taking over, but becoming a, a, a better tool. Right. And 3D well, printing, I look at that way. This is one of the dilemmas, right? If not only maybe in architecture, but just teaching design in general. There's a lot of people that, really question why we would be teaching students traditional methods, traditional sort of hand drawing or model making, and because we don't see very many offices doing it that way anymore. The old dinosaurs have got to get new dinosaurs, don't they? (laughs) We've got to keep breeding some of them somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And then because, but at the same time, do you still have to teach them the sort of like, how did people learn how to crawl? Do you have to still teach them that? Because it's important to understand the fundamentals or the basis 
as a way to understand how things actually work now. I think your analogy there of do we have to teach them how to crawl? They say that crawling develops a certain set of motor skills and stuff because of the actions that are taken, that if you walked without crawling, there'd be a part of your brain that wouldn't have developed into it. And you go back to just what you were saying, like the fundamentals of it. And think of the industries where the fundamentals have been lost. This wants to make, make me go down the rabbit hole of how did they build the pyramids? <laughs> you know, was it spacemen? <laughs> but how did they move those blocks of stone? Much Picchu. How did they move it? How did they make them all fit together so well? They didn't have a manual that said your tolerances will be X. They probably just had somebody said it's not tight enough. But lift that 15-ton rock off again and put it back on when you've made it nice and tidy, please. Yeah, how did they, all those things, we don't even know how they did it, and yet it happened by human endeavor somewhere in this picture. So that's lost. It's, there's nobody alive that can go, that is exactly how it was done, and know it was done that way. Know that was without a, that it was only ever done that particular way. And you go, right. huh. So then with the skills of being a teacher, and passing on these points of knowledge, we learn from history. Well, we're meant to. We'll see. <laughs> but we're meant to learn from history. History is what got us this far because it was stepping stones to where we are. So right. I think there's an awful amount of value in understanding it's how and process. Why. Yeah. And this is that gets talked a lot about in school is you need to teach the process because the process is more important than whatever your final, you know, yeah. project or building yeah. might look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that, that can be whether you're designing a pyramid or whether you're designing the process for 3d printing a house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so. One of the things that I, I often think with the 3d printed stuff is in innovation, one of our things that we move towards is, oh, but not always, can move towards is make it cheap and disposable. Make things more effectively, cost effective, and then make them something that we can just use and get rid of. And you think back to so many items that we have. Like a, a great example would be not so cheap but disposable would be your mobile phone. And so not so cheap because it's still a significant amount of money that you spend on it. But disposable, yes, we if we get a few years, maybe if we got if we see somebody with a seven year old phone, it's almost like please show me that thing. I want to see it. <laughs> really? That's a what? And it still works? Yeah, it still works. Yeah. So we move towards this and then I look at 3D printed houses and I go Will they just become, hey, there's a longevity in them that they may stand for 50 or something years, but if the machine can print them and the materials are readily available, do they become disposable in the sense, are they highly sustainable because they can be knocked down and reused? All the material that's in them can be reused into something else. Maybe? I don't know. It's a bit of a 
hangover from the 20th century mentality of disposable, right? And one of the most important tenets of thinking sustainably is we have to get rid of the idea that things are disposable at all. Because mm -hmm. we know they're not. If, if you demolish a house, you've still got what's left. If you throw away the phone, yeah, it's like... Yeah. <clears throat> it's garbage then or it's landfill then and, mm -hmm. and that's that's not and so the everybody knows this sort of phrase that the least or the most sustainable building is the one that hasn't been built yet yep and the next most sustainable is the one that has in that's the right. sense that's that right <laughs> yeah. that's right keep hold of it yeah 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 so if there's and i don't know maybe it's not reasonable to think that we could have a, a, a new iPhone that's going to last more than two years. But is that just, is that because Apple wants to make more money or is that because the technology is that much better in two years? Probably a, a combination of, of both. Like the technology is the thing that will move the quickest in there. And and then, yes, then there's a market-driven thing where you go, we've got to produce X number of units because our shareholders are you know, right. chomping at the bit. If we produce less, we same, need to charge more. That's the same with the housing industry, yeah. which is very frustrating because, especially in the States, single-family houses and the sort of sprawl that we've been watching for 100 years mm -hmm. is still going strong. And... I don't think it's sustainable and it, but the mentality can't or won't change if that system stays in place. Yeah. So what even happens with that? Like you say, this think single family home thing. And then it just sprawls out until what we run our land or until we I, I don't I actually don't even understand that's a big topic like what what happens it's what we are all somewhat disposed to or have a disposition towards going after is mm -hmm. it's a sign of success it's just, I don't even know there's so many things tied into it that it's to own a home on its own block of land. Yeah. Is, it's, just, it's part of the tradition, the American dream kind of thing. Yes, and, since the initiation of the country. And before yeah. that, Europeans, similar thing. And But now, and this goes back 100 years too, is the availability of the automobile and being able to yep. drive out of town and, you know, mm -hmm put gasoline in your car and, and that's it's all tied together like that so it's obviously a difficult problem to solve but True. You, know, you talk you talk about and maybe solve is the wrong word but but this idea that housing or single family housing is just this kind of product this consumable disposable yeah. Yeah. thing actually that, has a really lasting impact on the landscape and um 
massive. Yeah, it does. In fact, it shifts the landscape. Each one built shifts the landscape from what it was to what it's become. Yeah. It can't ever go back. It it shifts it. Yeah, I I love saying to clients that same thing. So we're going to choose to build this this home somewhere here and this if not is virgin landscapes probably pretty close to it might have had some trees at one point might have been burnt off at one point whatever but it's nobody's really gone over this with a bulldozer or a shovel and spade and changed it in a big way so we're about to do that yeah we've got to have a little bit of time to pause and think about whether we're making the right decision in the right place. Yeah. We're going to do something, but is it in the right place is the most important thing. Are we choosing the right spot for it? You know, as we see farms turn into subdivisions. Right. And again, you can't, you can, but you can't convince the farmer who's about to cash in yeah. that he shouldn't. No, he'd probably run out of income off what the land was doing anyway. Yeah, yeah. or it's, he's watched all of his neighbors do it over the last generation, yeah. and so it's you know time for him to sell a few hundred acres and get some single-family houses put up and make Going. a lot of money. Yeah, but and, and is it? I mean, it, these are the these kind of the difficult questions that we like to talk about with our students too when. We talk about the history of 20th century sprawl and mm-hmm. urbanism and all that kind of stuff. But mm. do, do we say that the government or the state or the city should be able to say, no, you can't, development stops? Because we can look at cities. I spent some time in Colorado. That's where I met my wife and uh-huh. before I, I was in that. Texas, you know, but... So Boulder is is always one of the examples. There's it's this, a great little gem of a town. Yeah, like, it's a beautiful yeah. place. Yeah, and they put a they put a boundary around the city mm-hmm. that gives it a kind of a no build zone, artificially making the city limits finite. Yeah, to and they preemptively said we're not going to let this sprawl and it's raised its own series of issues as far as the cost of building and living in a place like that now it's interesting we have something similar with a nothing the size of boulder but just so for everybody listening i live on the sunshine coast of queensland which is about an hour and a half north of brisbane so we're headed North, if you were headed south, you'd run into what we call the Gold Coast. But you, that's one that maybe makes it to the wider population of America. And we're a long way from Sydney. We're 12 hours by car, at least, from Sydney. But coming up that same coastline and then and about 40 minutes north of me, there's a little town, a beachside town called Noosa, which is Noosa Heads. And... Beautiful little spot, naturally a beautiful spot. It's got a big national park. It's got a world biosphere covenant over part of it as well. So it's a recognized biosphere. And 
it has a housing number of houses to be built cap on that space. So they go, yep, there won't be any more than that. And it's interesting to see what that's done. It hasn't reached the cap, but to see what that's done with developments that's that still sprawl, but satellited mm-hmm. away from it. And so it, and that kind of happens with sprawl anyway. It goes to different spots and then it moves, it brings itself back into the center often as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's interesting that they've done that. And I see like property prices there. There's places up there that achieve the $20 million plus property pricing, which is, yeah, it's a large chunk of change. When the average up there is probably, I think, an average house in Noosa is something like 1.1 million or 1.3 million or something like that. If it's 1.3 there, it's 1.1 where I live, Mm -hmm. which is 40 minutes south, 45 minutes south. And, and, that is because of the policy, it, just like it is in Boulder. The policy is driving the property market in a certain way, mm-hmm. and it's also driving the desirability to be in that space. That's right. That's right. Because the success is that it's, I guess it's arguable, but the quality of life in a place like Boulder is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, and I don't know if that's a result of the fact that it's just become a wealthier place or they've made the right decisions when it comes to just urban design or limiting sprawl. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's all of the above. Yeah, a combo of all those boxes yeah. ticked. Yeah. I think that it's a really interesting thing. And clearly the cost of gentrification is higher than the cost of building new somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And there's probably less rules to build new somewhere else. That makes it a little easier as well. There's Yeah, and and that's always the problem is that maybe the best solution is the hardest to achieve and maybe the most expensive to to figure out. Yeah. So guess what happens? When I was training people in innovation, we used to come to a point where we would want to prototype don't necessarily have to prototype it physically but mentally prototype and we there's always three solutions that we would drive everybody to so we were using this at airbus and we used it with part of boeing at one point and we used it with footlocker inc some of the brigade agencies, Bombardier, there's all sorts of people that we use this with. And we came down to three points. You needed to consider cheap, simple, and beautiful. And the three points that were really interesting is as cheap as down and dirty, it's will it work? Is it, how quickly can I bring it to working? So innovation may not be the creating of something. It might just be a process. Is it elegant? No. It's not elegant. This is a blunt hammer, but it works. It just mm-hmm. puts the rivet in the hole. Simple is when it actually delivers. A, 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 it's simpler for the people who use it. It's simpler for the outcome. It's easier. It takes less resource. It's just simple. 
it takes a little more and it probably costs a little more to get to. And then you get beautiful. Now, beautiful is idyllic. It is, it takes nothing. It leaves nothing. It is the utopia of creating. It's usually, in fact, in all my time with it, I've never seen it as being a quick solution. It's a long game. It's a long planned game. It costs money. It takes resources. It takes, I'm going to say, sticking to the rules that you've established. And it brings everybody on board. Everybody's excited and comfortable by it and comfortable in the journey. That's beautiful. So you start often, or we would often end up with these three solutions to any problem. And beautiful would be all your heart would be in beautiful. And then the commercial side of things, and not always the commercial side, sometimes it might be the physicality of the side of things, would drive you towards simple with the hope of achieving beautiful in a longer game. Usually when it was cheap, you would go, look, we can just execute that right now. We can move forward past that. We can circle back to it once that's in place and it's working. It's Mm -hmm. it's like cheap. I always think of uh, corporates and they lay off a third of their staff, the third of the team all get the the nail because uh, basically they know that they're bleeding money somewhere. So let's get rid of that big fixed overhead and then we'll worry about what comes after that. So I find that really fascinating, but the same happens in architecture. So Buckminster Fuller. Uh Bucky. Yeah. used to talk about how he would never approach a problem by thinking about beauty, right? Because he would go and figure out the problem. And then if the result wasn't beautiful, he knew it was wrong. Ah. That's why just... he was a no. That's why he was an absolute <laughs> genius. Obviously, it's one of my favorite yeah quotes of of all time. I like to, yeah. and, and it 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 talks to this idea of the kind of the handmade and prototyping and figuring things mm-hmm. out iteratively and and just trying to work through a problem. And and if if you put this idea that it has to be beautiful aside, now I know that might be different if you're maybe working for clients, but when it comes to students and working in the studio and just experimentation then yeah. i always like that idea that once you arrive at at the right thing then you'll it's the right thing automatically be beautiful because mm-hmm. it's the right answer Bec- yeah because you've given enough yeah you, you've respected enough to get to the right answer yeah that's how i love that i love that really yeah it's a great way of approaching it that until it's beautiful, then you're not there yet. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And again, maybe we're all lucky enough to get one of those in our lifetime. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if we're really lucky. That's fascinating. I love that whole tie-up between teaching like that as well. And then also we've got the next thing that's going to disrupt, obviously, your, um, which is AI. And people with MidJourney and ChatGPT and there's plenty of others, Dali, there's plenty of others out there. How's that affecting 
I want to say, architecture from the student perspective and mood and an understanding. And I know plenty of design people who are just throwing their hands up going, life's over for me. What's that doing for them? I'm trying not to have that attitude. And I haven't investigated it very much. It makes me a little bit nervous. Um, (laughs) But it, I have lots of colleagues and I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, people at the universities and architecture schools that are really trying to dive into what it means, what could we Mm -hmm. get out of, what's the creative sort of results that can be positive. There's, there's, what what it reminds me of is the kind of moment that we saw in the nineties when we were first getting 3d modeling and 3d software, parametric modeling. And you can look back at the trajectory or the path that that followed and say, okay, the technology led here first, trying to understand how you could use the technology to, to copy systems that we're already familiar with, right? That's mm-hmm. always the first step. And I'm paraphrasing yeah, yeah. Uh, Mario, Mario Carpo here, which nice. he's, he's much smarter than I am. And, but that's always the first step with new technologies is how do you mimic old technologies? And then you start to realize that there's a trajectory for the new technology that nobody really imagined when it first yeah. appeared. Yeah. And we're still, I think, I'm probably wrong, but it will probably right at that first phase still is we don't know what this means. And um, the bigger context, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. And we're all hoping that it doesn't mean the end of the robots take us over. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not. Blade Runner, uh, yeah. we hope. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Uh, certainly, when you think of AI, that it, it's, uh, you know, if you, anybody here has used ChatGPT, they know it's ChatGPT may not be smarter than them yet, but it can produce you a thousand different things that if you're smart enough to be able to read, then you can choose the pieces from it and then ask it to reproduce them with that. So again, it's like a the guy going from scribing something to making woodblock prints to creating, we'll go to a computer and a print. Oh, I, I missed typewriter, you know, banging mm-hmm. away on keys. Previous to that, they, the, I want to say written word or the communication was scratched in the soil or it was any of those things. It was just, it wasn't considered that it needed to be kept. It was of the moment. And now we have something watching everything, keeping everything. Our watches and our phones know exactly where we are, how long we've stayed still, what our heart rate is, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on. And that data has been collected by someone somewhere who's going to tell us how we take our next breath. We may be already there. (laughs) There's always been this concern about originality. Mm -hmm. 
but in especially when you're a student, not that it's wrong, but it's natural, I think, when you're that age to think that your work has to be original somehow. Uh-huh. And this is a conversation I like to have or I've I've enjoyed because it reminds me of the like work of Andy Warhol maybe Mm -hmm. and being able to capitalize on a new technique using recycled images. And so we're maybe this is similar to chat GPT or this idea that somehow you need you you are okay dealing with things that are already in existence. You're just reappropriating or just sampling. Yeah, just sampling. Oh, Ed Yeah. Sheeran. Ed Sheeran Right. is an artist. He creates Yeah. his samples and then layers them and layers them. And he's not the only one. There's heaps. And think of what Yeah. DJs went from. It used to be somebody put a vinyl on and that was it. And it got played. And then somebody said, oh, we can pull it backwards and forwards and make a scratchy sound. And then we go from that to having two turntables. Then we go from that to electronic and doing it electronically. And suddenly we've got a music industry, a piece of the genre. That is how it operates. Who said rap could be classed as singing? Like it's somebody talking or talking fast. Like it's, it's this thing, it's evolving, it's growing and we're moving with it. We can like it or not like it, but it's not going to stop whether we like it or don't like it. Yeah, maybe the question is if ChatGPT is as straightforward as as sampling is. I'm not sure that's the case, but No, I'm sure it's not. the yeah, the but it, it, at this point in time, <laughs> it feels that it's that way. yeah, it feels pretty I mean, simple right there's this now. massive catalog that we can draw upon, Mm -hmm. and so maybe it's not a it's not A reproduction Mm. in the way that Campbell's soup can is a reproduction. Um, 100%. but it's sort of not original. But again, what I try to talk It's about it's is innovative. it, it's innovative, but originality is not really the, the end goal for a student in architecture. No, it's interesting. Like when I was doing a lot of uh, stuff with innovation training, we would separate creation from innovation, and there's very little creation. And when it does, when you find something or you discover something, and the the one that We used to use as an example a lot was the benzene molecule and all of a sudden what could happen with it and it created a field of endeavour behind it. The jet engine did the same thing, this thing of sucking air in and forcing it out. It changed, it created an, an industry behind it. It changed everything from how we saw things. Possibilities that came from it are just incredible and interwoven into our lives in so many ways that we'd have no idea fiber optics is another one that we could send light or digital light down a glass cable and things could happen just those sorts of things and you go and they changed everything that happens in our life that we now just take for granted it's happening in the background it's just like breathing for us it happens in the background we don't even have to remember to our body does it for us Mm. <laughs> what a rabbit hole. <laughs> I think that AI has a place and I'm not 
quite sure where it is and I play with bits of it and I think that at one at some point like you said with the 3D printing before maybe it takes over the construction industry and everything's 3D printed maybe who knows maybe it does become what how it's all done and at the moment the biggest thing that I see with AI is that our ability to prompt it gives us our result and that requires creative thinking mm -hmm. it's just a redirection of our thinking right right and yeah. so it, this goes back to the idea that architecture students need to think about the systems that are in place and the process as being ultimately more valuable than some sort of object or yeah. a beautiful building at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. It's, and what, what's required of it, what's required of that space and place. I think that when you look at what people are doing with tools like Midjourney and Dali and those graphical interfaces and we go back to that conversation we had around how there's basically people learning architecture to create worlds that are visual worlds with without the constraints of what we have in a physical world it's no wonder that people would love to run off and live in the the virtual reality world because it can be full of fantasy you think of a movie like avatar like it it yeah. captures people's imagination i know it's just a boy meets girl falls in love bit of conflict along the way story but people fall in love with the visual aspect of how beautiful it is and this sort of utopia and all the rest and fantasy Maybe that's just escapism. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure how all well, that that's, works. That's what drives the industry as much as anything, right? Yeah, that is. Yeah. That is. Yeah. So I want to move gears. <laughs> that was really <laughs> fun. I want to talk about Passive House because I know it's something that you play in and that I I have this, my own personal thing where when you live in certain climates, passive houses are probably the most wonderful thing. And when you live in other climates, it's probably not necessary or maybe necessary, but in part. Take me down a journey of passive house, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> I was introduced to it before I came to Texas. I was teaching in South Dakota, which is a cold climate, yep. as you probably know. Yeah, I love South Dakota. I've been there a couple of times. It's great. Yeah? Yeah. We, I was there because we were starting a new school of architecture at South Dakota State. Uh-huh. And so that was its own adventure and a lot of work and really rewarding. And one of the things that presented itself was the chance to do uh, Passive House. And that's where I learned about it. Uh-huh. So and I think it's it originated in a cold climate originally in the 
in Europe, Germany. I think it was in Germany and yeah. in the States, there were some people that were working on it in Illinois and in Northern Again, cold climate. climates. Well, cold, cold and hot, both extremes. Hot yeah. summers. Yeah, hot summers. Um, and, yeah, and Germany cold also, there's the other thing of the amount of moisture in that as well. Somewhere like South Dakota's got a very different moisture content than, say, Illinois even, and then Illinois to, say, Hamburg versus to Bremen or to one of those other places in Germany that's more in the land, like heavily in the landlocked areas as opposed to anything that's got water. um... I'm involved with with FIAS, which is Passive House Institute of the US, right? And so the FIAS is related to, but not the same as the original Passive House Institute. Uh-huh. And and the main difference is that the FIAS standard uses metrics that account for what climate zone you're in. Oh, yeah. Whereas the original sort of PHI group i don't believe that's the case yeah and what that means in the u.s is the getting a passive health certification is i shouldn't say it's easy but it's easier because it does account for the sort of extreme climates Mm -hmm. or more extreme kind of climates that we have in the u.s versus like in northern europe higher humidity levels, higher shifts between winter and summer. We California is the ideal place. And so all the Californias have been saying that for a long time. That's not new news. Yeah. (laughs) Until they got their taxes. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Maybe this is one of the reasons you don't see it out there is because you can you can still build houses that operate on fairly lower i should say lower amounts of energy demand and and just because the weather is so cooperative yeah Um, and definitely it's from one end of the state to the other southern california probably even more cooperative than northern california yeah of course and this Mm. is where all the beautiful case study houses and all that great it's sure there's a reason that that's that's why know, all those houses are <laughs> yeah, mid century yeah. houses in in the northern midwest yeah were a lot bulkier because they needed to close themselves up and be insulated and all that and so this yeah. is and and this is true in the humid climate so in texas or in the southeast we can't leave the doors open in the summertime Mm-hmm. And I've got a challenging question on that, but go. Yeah, and, and our, you know we're in a cooling climate, which means air conditioning is on, you mm-hmm. know, twenty four seven for six or seven months a year. Yeah, and so that's a huge energy demand, and and so the challenge to introduce you know, net zero or low energy demand 
buildings is just as important here as it is in cold climates. Sure. It's just the difference between heating and cooling. Both of them have big energy demands. That's right. That's right. And, but I think it's more complicated too with issues of dehumidification. And Uh that's another, I think, important difference that we deal with in the U.S. and certainly in the eastern half of the U.S. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the pieces that needs to be understood. Like I was saying to you before we started recording, where I live, it's climate somewhat more like Florida versus, say, Austin, although Austin does fit within the climate sort of tolerances. And we've got a coastal climate as well, so our air's just a little heavier. Mm-hmm. And people, our climate temperatures, I'm going to do this in Celsius because I can't do it in Fahrenheit. I, no I, I, yeah, I'd need to calculate that as I went. But we would think that six degrees would be we'd be complaining that it's really cold today at six degrees, and well, that's not your thirty two's freezing. Six degrees is it's cold, but it's if there's no wind blowing, it could be clear blue skies. We would only get moments of six degrees where I live. There'd be moments of it that would seem like we'd been taken to the Arctic. <laughs> And then in general, in our winter, we will run somewhere between maybe 16 and 24 degrees Celsius. And then in our summer, we would not, it would be rare for us to get through to mid 30s. So those are mid 30s might be approaching 100, but we will have 100% humidity at that point as well, 99% humidity. You're going to do the calculations for me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it helps me. It helps me. That's for yeah. sure. So uh, say 36, 38, where I so, live, would be an extremely hot day. Yeah. So 36 Celsius is about 100. Yeah. Around 100. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the time we probably, during our summer months, are sitting around like high 20s, 28, something like that. But with quite high humidity. Yeah, so, and that's uncomfortable. If if you're, this is gonna. This was when I was gonna say I've got a really you know, a question about that. How soft are we as humans? Is my question. <laughs> that's right. Uh, this isn't. This wouldn't be considered a big temperature spread. I could go to um, tons of places in the states where I would be in what we would say here minus. 15 or something like that and we would be over 100 in the summer now that's a temperature spread it's like total extremes and we've got people here who close the doors and everything else because they can't stand the humidity Mm -hmm. i'm like you serious like you're living in utopia and you've got an issue with this amount of it and Sometimes to my wife's amazement, we live in a renovated house, but I took the air conditioning out of it. I went, we live here. Let's get used to it. Let's learn to work with it. Now, I know she escapes to work 
sometimes because of the fact that she's got air conditioning. But really, we've got discomfort of any level for maybe if you totaled all the days together of maybe two weeks out of 52 that we could really claim that we're really just uncomfortable. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? And I go, and yet we've got people acting like they're in a (laughs) furnace and then we've got people acting like, oh, we need the heating on. Yeah. And then I I come... That's really lucky because... And what I was going to say is that Americans are just completely spoiled when it comes to what they expect. Yeah, just how soft we've become as humans. Yeah. 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 I was going to say Americans are worse, but... I I don't think so. Similar. Similar. This this expectation that it's going to be 70 degrees indoors with 40% humidity everywhere you go, and any variation from that means that you have to turn on the, the AC. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. and, and when, one of the things Phoenix is trying to trying to push that a little bit, right? And the the climate, or I should say, the climate, the range that they allow is a little bit warmer in the summer, a little bit cooler in the winter than what I think the average is for indoor comfort that we might otherwise use yeah so they're trying it's not a ton but they're trying to stretch a little bit just as a way to follow through on this it's like we we need to be a little bit more tolerant of the extremes because we're certainly getting more extremes to to, well, to be tolerant of we, yeah, we're going right. to have to see them yeah I... where it's really disastrous is places like in the Northwest, mm-hmm. like in Seattle, or even like in London the last few years, mm-hmm. right? It was places that have traditionally not ever installed air conditioning because it's never been part of their climate. But and now they're having 40 degree days in London. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And yep. that's, it's not even a joke. It's actually life threatening and, and can be very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. We've moved to that point, but also our health has moved to that point along the same way. I don't know whether you're a fan, I'd be interested to hear from many listeners, of Wim Hof. He's known as the Iceman. You can look him up. And he is, he's the ice bath guy. He's the guy who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in his shorts in the snow. He's the guy who runs marathons in the snow, things like that. And the health benefits of heat and cold. We've got athletes now If you said to an athlete 30 years ago, jump in the sauna or come straight off the pitch and jump into this cold ice bath at four degrees, I don't even know that even that conversation ever existed at that point. (laughs) And yet now we've got Formula One drivers jumping out of a Formula One and straight into an ice bath, unless they've just won the race. But that recovery system we're seeing that these extremes help us be more, Mm -hmm. they actually suit our bodies. And we're prepared to put ourselves through the pain of hot and cold like that, but we still expect our homes to be at a kind of a set temperature. And then we want all the connection we can get with the outdoors. 
We don't want to feel cut off from that, but we mm-hmm. do when it comes to temperature. This conundrum that we're setting up, yeah. I don't understand where the reality of it is. And when we come to Passive House, I'm the same. I go, so for some climates, I get it. If I was trying to do a Passive House here where I am, to function 24-7 as a Passive House, everybody would say, but hold on, I'm going to open all those doors, you know. We're doing a house here got 12 meters of in one single space of open doors so that's uh 36 feet of that will be fully open mm-hmm. probably for nine months of the year other than at night the the trick question on the test is what's the best way to air condition or ventilate your house yep and the answer is open the window <laughs> And yep. again, it's a trick question for Americans because that that sense that simplicity was just gone from what our expectations are when it comes to heating and cooling and indoor comfort and those kinds of things. I think but the other I, thing. Oh, sorry, go. Oh no, I, but that that's it, it's easy to forget. That's really the basis of what passive house is trying to be, because it's very complicated energy modeling and lots of numbers mm-hmm. and figuring out our values and air tightnesses and all and but yeah it, it gets very quickly into a lot of calculations and so, but ultimately what you're trying to do is just achieve net zero you want to be able to live comfortably without using any energy mm-hmm. so if you can have a house where you can throw open the doors and that's how you like to live then that seems totally fine. The fact that it might still be a passive house just means that when you close the door, when it gets cold overnight, then you can do it. And whatever energy you need to heat the house back up is cool it down. Is, or cool yeah. It down or, yeah. Yeah. You can it's, still do that naturally or for very little demand. Yeah. That's the key. This is, I was having a conversation with a builder recently who is a, He's a master carpenter from Germany, and he does passive house here in Australia. And we were talking about the climate that we're in here, and two two things came out of it. One was is taking uh, a core unit within the house that you may maintain passive house in. So you don't have to get certification, but you may maintain that piece with that system and then taking the greater house, being able to be maintained with that system, but knowing that it's almost like having a dual system in there. Uh, so that piece will all be open and affected. It will be living and breathing with the day-to-day. And then the other piece will be, it will be in a controlled environment. Uh, so mm-hmm. a core of it will be, and then it grows out. Or oh, what I was going to say before with it was, if we... Uh, having homes that you know obviously support us better like this and you you made the point the old thing of open the window that's the fastest way to get here in the house i think that what's been lost a lot of in a lot of places that i see is that people's understanding of airflow because of our mechanical mentality if we go to the desert in Morocco or even in Australia, like they use these different 
cooling systems in the desert, like evaporative cooling systems and stuff like that. Very dry air. Able to use that just moisture and circulate that around. But then I'm in, where was I? Zion National Park a few years back. And the park service there demands that all buildings are cooled passively and heated passively. So then we're using mass for walls we're looking at light angles we're opening up spaces so that the air can flow there is no mechanical ventilation in those places and it gets from above 40 to below i don't know well below freezing that's a technology that a system call it technology it's a system that was well thought out discovered works why can't we just take that and build all our structures within having to do that without depending on whatever the climate is? Is is there a perfect kind of piece of architecture that doesn't require any mechanical ventilation? Uh, We we were talking earlier about, not before we started recording, I've got a property that I'm working on where it's got a big high-pitched ceiling and there is no way for any air to escape out of the room below, um, oh, sorry, above, uh, I'm trying to do the calcs in my head, 2100. What is that? That's six, eight. It's probably like less than eight feet. It is, it's less than eight feet. It's probably seven feet or something like that. Maybe seven and a half foot. There's no space for air movement. So more than, I would say, around 30% of the air in that space is actually stagnant air. Mm-hmm. I can stir it around with a ceiling fan, but it's stagnant air. And then we talk about add a bit of humidity, add a bit of heat, get a little mm-hmm. bit of mold going on with a bit of dust. It's in a treat environment, so then there'll be some pretty good out organic dust in there. This is a case for passive house, or it's a case for better design where that where there is air being brought in and taken out and that we don't have too many dead corners and stuff. I'm teach me something here, Chuck. <laughs> um, passive ventilation. It my understanding is that if you can make it work, then obviously that's the best choice. But that's also based a lot on what your climate is. Mm-hmm. So in a place, when you say Zion, you're talking about here in the States. Yeah, sure. You're not yeah. far from St. George, Zion National Park. Yeah. yeah. That's a, it's a great climate for that. It has, it's very arid. Mm-hmm. And so that That's the one thing that makes the climate like we're in, in Texas or anywhere in the Midwest or the American eastern half of the u.s it's a very high humidity kind of a place and the summers in texas or in the south it just it's not bearable without some sort of mechanical ventilation mm-hmm. maybe i'm wrong or maybe i'm spoiled but probably I, both I no I probably more both. spoiled than probably wrong both. but we all are <laughs> yeah i am too <laughs> but the to imagine that you could eliminate mechanical ventilation in a lot of these hot mm-hmm. climates or mm-hmm. hot humid climates, right? 
it's hard to imagine that could happen at all. It's hard to imagine you could have a level of comfort without it, eh? And the, yeah. even your ability to survive and it gets stuck, at some point gets compromised. I, I think of this, if people, you probably don't know what the Kokoda Trail is, but if people look up what the Kokoda Trail is, it's in Papua New Guinea. The humidity's so high, it's raining pretty much all the time. And people go on this climb, this walk, days of walk. And there's been people who die from drowning themselves, but they're drowning themselves with their water bottle because they their body can't expel the moisture fast enough. They're exercising in it. They're drinking water with no mineral replacement. And suddenly there's pores, flood, and that drowns them. essentially drowns their body and they die and they're fit, healthy, everything else. But that's just a combination of factors that where their body can't humanly take care of it to any efficiency level. And I, I, what you're talking about is that same kind of point where you get to that point where your body can't actually manufacture or can't cope with it. It's not like people didn't live here before air conditioning, Mm. but I've had a few of my colleagues tell me that air conditioning is really the thing that turned on the increase in population in the American South. No. Cities that are really big places now, Dallas, Atlanta, Miami, these are places that had very small populations comparatively to elsewhere in the States. Yeah, where you've got the southeastern states and, sorry, northeastern states and, yeah, I can see that. And and again, this is, we will become very dependent on the fact that air conditioning is, has made it. And again, I'm, I'm not a native Texas, so I, Texan, so I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't, I definitely don't like the hot summers here. Uh-huh. And so it's always this trade. I, I joke with my old colleagues that I knew in South Dakota and it's okay. What's one extreme versus the other? Yeah. Cause in places like South Dakota, everybody closes the door for three or four months in the wintertime. Cause it's just so cold out. Yep. And down here it's, of course, it's the opposite. Yeah. So with Passive House, and how how do you treat air conditioning? Tell me about Passive House air conditioning. And I'm asking for myself a little and for the listeners a lot. The thought or the approach is that the system doesn't need to be very big. Because if the building envelope is constructed to the specifications that we want our values air tightness no thermal bridges right this is these are the yep. sort of the holy grails yeah then your air conditioning system can be pretty small we can use mini split or we're not using with there's not a lot of waste right and yeah. so the system itself is not anything overly complex or different from what we're used to. Otherwise, it's just a heat pump. Mm -hmm. And 
the difficulty comes in trying to balance it. If the space is a little bit more complex, trying to deal with dehumidification, if that becomes an issue in certain rooms, if there's more airflow or a little bit less air tightness. And so it's that kind of balancing. And I think for that reason, it makes getting the passive house numbers just right in the south and the southeast a little bit more complicated. Right. It's it's one of the reasons that we don't see it as much. I think it's coming. There's other reasons why obviously it hasn't been adopted. Mm-hmm. Political reasons, those kinds of expectations are standards, yeah. Yeah, that that hasn't been the normal way of building down here. And that's understandable, I guess, for its own reasons. But it's coming. And so the but the getting achieving the passive house standard in cold climates has a lot to do with just getting the insulation. Yeah. Getting rid of thermal bridges. Yeah. And in hotter climates like we're in here in Texas, the insulation isn't that radical. It's levels that are pretty much the same as what the new building codes call for. Yeah. That, and the, that's the kind minimum. of good news, right? Mm-hmm. And so the challenge is to encourage new homes or new buildings to just be more conscientious when it comes to air tightness and better quality windows and managing daylighting and heat gain and things like that, because it's, those are the factors that kind of are shrugged off and a little bit less known. Yeah. They're harder to quantify than our values. We, in the North, our values are, we know what our values are. We can increase the amount of insulation that we add and we'll do better. Sure. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. We can do yeah. that one. Yeah, until we're sandwiched deep in in insulation. Yeah. 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 So it, it's a little trickier. It's a little bit less known. And this, it, in my sense, is that's the real hurdle is is getting the building industry to understand that these are targets that are we can learn how to hit without too much too much suffering i think we can learn how to do this Um, i look at what you were just saying there with those pieces and and you go we should be regardless of what our heating cooling whether it's adrian opening all the doors on the house and some highlight celestial windows and stuff to let airflow and all these things happening we should be building houses that can be airtight we should be building them with the right amount of insulation so that we are blocking heat or cold wherever we need to Mm -hmm. and then we should be making choices about where we'll let heat and cold in to our designs and even moisture if required moisture is far harder to get rid of than it is to to create That's probably to, the bigger challenge. Yeah, moisture is the enemy. Yeah, and it's understanding understanding how it moves to the envelope is important. 
the airtight what goes along with airtightness is really eliminating a lot of uh vapor that vapor that you don't want yeah sort of trapped vapor and wall and get yeah trapped. yeah and then you create mold and then you and on it goes from there yeah yeah, yeah. so question big theoretical one so you have this perfect indoor climate just peachy you walk outside and it's uh massive humidity you're sweating like crazy within seconds how does that help and i don't expect the answer here just prefixing that but for everybody listening i'm keen to hear what you think how does that help your health if you're living in that climate. So you've either got to stay indoors, got to get in the car inside, drive out, ideally electric car so that you're not leaving a house full of fumes, drive out the door to the, from the garage to the house has to be an airlock because you're going to open that one. And then you get out, but then you can't drive all the way into the mall or all the way into the next air conditioned space. You've got to cross open ground. Is it well, just, is that like alcohol? You drink too much, it kills you. You drink just enough, it makes you laugh. Like, or fight. <laughs> the, the, the benefit of Passive House is the indoor environment. You're using a, a ventilation system, mm-hmm. an energy recovery ventilation system that is actually bringing fresh air into the house at, at a higher level than you would get otherwise. Than air conditioning would. Yeah, air conditioning yeah. is not designed for... the Bringing kind of in fresh air, that. yeah. So, and this is one of the things that... One of the unexpected results of COVID is suddenly everybody was concerned about the quality of indoor air and okay so if you're doing a passive house then the idea of a ventilation system is just built into it and the air quality of your house is like way better than your neighbor because you're using this fresh air system some fresh filtered fresh air versus just locking a space down and keeping that air cycling through yeah, filters it, still, but cycling through filters, and it's the same air pressurized into the space. Right. And so you're getting natural air coming through leaky windows and a little bit of unbalanced kind of ventilation that comes from the old-fashioned air conditioning system. But the newer ERV, HRV kind of systems, you know, these are doing way better when it comes to air quality inside your, your house. Now, that doesn't answer the question. And I think what you're going for is more like the, this suspicion that passive house advocates are suggesting that outside is bad and inside is good. And it's. I was and, pushing that just to see where you'd go. <laughs> I, I think. None of them, just, I think, really believe that. It's just that it becomes the conundrum of which side of it are you on. And this is where you have to, or I should say you, but yeah, we, but we have the to be greater less, us. 
yeah. less fanatical about this idea that passive house is some sort of um, like sociological sort of revolution. <laughs> it's just making better buildings. And if you like to live with your windows open, then that's cool. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have an HRV system or a, a ventilation system versus having a air conditioning system. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So if you've got to go outside and it's nasty outside and it's humid outside, then yep. you should close the door and Absolutely. go get in the car, whatever, go for a walk. Yep. And, you know, it, I'm with you. I, I go. It, so should we see a shift? If, first of all, things like you said before, higher R values, air tightness, thermal bridging. And I'm, for people who don't know what thermal bridging is, is it's basically you know you don't carry a steel beam from outside to inside and let that cold run into the that's a really blunt way of describing what thermal bridging is but it's like triple glazed glass versus single glazed glass it's these kinds of things and then frames that everything's designed to keep one layer out and have another layer inside so that's the very blunt way of telling you what thermal bridging is Mm -hmm. But then should we be moving from air conditioning to like traditional air conditioning to ventilation systems? And would that work for all our different climate ranges? I think Australia, I'm talking Australia and US at the moment, but Australia is the same size as the US. The continent of Australia and the continent of the US are the same size. And so we have probably as a diverse climate, maybe not quite the cold mountainous side we do have it but only in tiny little bits but we don't where you've got big pieces of it as it comes down from Canada and stuff we don't have the same amount of that but otherwise we probably have the same as our desert scape is way bigger mm-hmm. not necessarily bigger yeah maybe our desert scapes way bigger yeah so our climates go from the same humidities Maybe not quite the same extreme cold, but close. And then, and our dryness as well, and our high temperatures. We're probably all pretty close in some parts of it, of our, both our countries. Yeah. So if we had a, you know, an HRV system, could we just be using that everywhere? The an HRV or an ERV, I think, is one of those things that's a given when you're trying to do passive house just because you can't have the building so airtight without introducing fresh air Yeah. somehow. Yeah. And so this is one of the things that it, it's hard to describe to contractors who are used to using traditional air conditioning, which includes ventilation all in one. And so when you separate the two, then you can think about heating and cooling using a heat pump unit, much smaller demand kind of a thing. And I guess the long-term goal is to eliminate our dependence on, you know, refrigeration, which requires all the kind of refrigerants and chemicals and energy chemicals and all that nastiness that goes into those systems too. But that's, can That's we, a harder problem, I think. Can we dry uh, the air 
with an HRV system or a VRV system. So can we take that big humidity and dry it? I've heard different answers to that question. I've, I think that the jury is still out a little bit. I've heard that dehumidification needs to maybe just exist as its own system, separate from the ventilation system. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that stopped some of the experimentation because it makes sense. It's okay. Let's, we can use less equipment if we can figure out a way that the ERV can actually also be dehumidification. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's, uh, these are some of the questions that I love to like have in this conversation because there's so much the well passive house I think it's brilliant it it does an amazing job with what it does and there's certainly not a whole lot of other and we'll say just passive house principles here then you've got good design principles layer those in as well then We've got our climate conditions that vary so much over continents. Mm-hmm. And as designers, how do we embrace this picture and know that we're creating something that has a higher level of sustainability, we're trying to get to the net zero? How do we do that and then still live in this comfort zone we want to live in? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, how- it's important to. The goal is, and some places are getting there, which is encouraging, but the, the goal needs to be that this is just going to be our new normal in terms of construction. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And one of the things that I, I try to talk about a little bit with my students too, is that the passive house ideas and the metrics, these are really just about a building envelope. And so there's other certification standards that are, are much more holistic in terms of thinking about issues of wellness and uh-huh. issues of community and, and those kinds of things, living building challenge or building or yeah, these are thinking about water sustainability is mm-hmm. maybe you know the <laughs> most critical one. And so these, and I'm not suggesting that they have to be incorporated into the passive house metric, but it's important to not get overly focused on just building envelope when we know that the issue is, is broader. way bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. That was a good little rabbit hole. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I think yeah, I learned yeah. lots from it. I hope other people learned a lot from it as well, because that was fascinating. <laughs> yes. um, I've got a couple of last questions. Um, I asked these of a lot of people. Your favorite place in your own home? Sitting on my leather sofa in front of the stereo. What do you listen to? I still have a stereo. That's how I love it, man. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. The, my most recent favorite record that I bought that I've been looking for is an original first pressing of, Blue by Joni Mitchell. Oh wow! Yeah, so, cool. I'm, I'm trying to learn to like Joni Mitchell. 
what is the emotion that it evokes for you when you sit in that space, whether you're trying to learn or not? <laughs> it's just, I don't know, just decompressing, trying to relax, yeah. turn the screen off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm always fascinated to see where people go for that feeling and then what is it like. When you're seated there, what can you see? It's our den. It's not really a man cave, but there's TV and there's some stuff on the wall. And we're in a house right now that's a cool mid-century so the big stone fireplace and mm. it's pretty nice. Yeah, cool. I like it. Great answers. Now yours there. It's <laughs> just always fascinating to and, and it does, it gives you a place to decompress, to relax and screens off or whatever it is. It's a mm-hmm. yeah, simpler. Which is yeah, interesting. Um the other one is one last project. After that, this project's done you can never influence another design project. You are no longer allowed to talk about design, do design, any of those things. What would you choose? It would either be a gallery or a theater. Those are the ones, those are my go-to projects when I assign a project for my students. And so I get to think about those a lot as building types. Uh-huh. And so I've, I've been around and around thinking about those for years. And those, those are the ones that intrigue me the most. So you're about to do the Joni Mitchell Theater and Gallery? <laughs> <laughs> Depends how much you like her. <laughs> I, I do, You've got to I learn to. Like I hope that didn't come off wrong. I mean, no, it didn't. It she's was amazing, but is, yeah. I just don't didn't know very much. I was a guy growing up in the eighties and the seventies. Mm-hmm. She wasn't the first thing first that choice on, on radio. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, amazing artist, like amazing artist. And did you listen to it on vinyl? Listen to her on vinyl, so you yeah. get the scratch of the needle, and you get the all those little nuances that happen as well. And yeah. it'll be a non-digital recording, I imagine you're listening to. So it would have been an analog recording. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be, right? The, yeah. For yeah. the magic to be there. So the come just, back to that whole tactility of there's no compression. On, it's yeah. 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 I always think that I feel like music lost something it took, music certainly lost something for me when it became digitized. And then the fact that music was all held on somebody's server, like Spotify or something somewhere, as opposed to making a deliberate choice over choosing an album and all those things. I still have vinyl as well. But I use both systems. To me, it lost something. And I, I can't, I'm not even that good with music that I could tell you what. I think that. Yeah, that that magic of the feeling of music that it gave me disappeared along that genre and I became 
way less interested unless I could go and see it live. And mm. then as I've got older and crotchety, I've <laughs> decided that really live means that there's no more than a few hundred people with me. Not I'm going to see Taylor Swift, there'll be a hundred thousand people in that stadium. <laughs> but that to me is an event. Yeah, the music, yeah, you know what, I'd be better off to listen to it somewhere else. So yeah. that kind of thing. But if I could see Taylor at the Continental Club and or the Grand Old Opry and you know, Nashville or Continental Club in Austin or something like that, I go, Oh yeah, take me to heaven. And it's not even that I'm Taylor's biggest fan by any means. I'm not a Swifty. <laughs> I just go the quality of the music and the quality of that person being hurt, that energy that they emit when they're so in their passion and so in their flow and so in their moment would be magical to be in the presence of. Let's soak it up. It's a perfect way to wrap it up because that's the architecture matters. The room matters to the artist, right? Mm -hmm. And to the listener. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck, awesome conversation. Way longer than I expected as well. <laughs> Sorry to take so much of your time. That was so no, good, man. Yeah, it's great to talk to Adrian. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, man. Hi, guys. I'm Adrian. I'm your host of Talk Design Podcast. I started this podcast a couple of years ago, and in doing it, my aim was to talk to amazing design people, creative minds, people who I could learn from and hopefully you could learn from. This was a big part of my whole reasoning for starting the podcast. We've cracked over 80 episodes and we've done two homes tour specials for the AIA Austin in Texas, which have been really great fun, talking just specifically about houses. We've talked to HGTV stars, We've talked to building designers, interior designers, architects, business coaches, and some inspired characters along the way. People who have captured my imagination and their creative output and gone, huh, these people would bring a story to somebody else and maybe inspire them to go a little further with what they're doing as well. So I wanted to reach out and ask you all for some advice because you are the guys who tune in and listen and subscribe, and I really appreciate that. So I want some advice from you. If you guys would be happy to share with me, A, what you like best, so that I can better direct what we cover as content. And then also, if there's things you want to solve, what are the three biggest things you would like information on? What are those kind of keys so that I can look and go, okay, let's find somebody who speaks specifically on these points and get some depth of information back to you that would be really useful in your business or in your life or in your home, whichever one it would be. So if I could ask you to do that, I would be forever grateful if you would share with me just through the email based on the Talk Design website, which is www.talkdesign.show. If you could just reach out via that email and say to me, hey, this would be a really great subject for me, for my business or for my family or for my home or for the way I want to see life. I would love to be able to support you guys and find those people that we could talk to that would bring that to you. 
So thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I so appreciate the fact that you listen to the podcast. It makes it all the more fun when I get messages from you to say, hey, this inspired me. I had somebody who sent me one the other day that said, your podcast, and we were talking on a certain subject, it was a game changer for me. It was a game changer in how I viewed how I was looking at what I was doing with my design and what was going to come from that. So these things make it all the more worthwhile. So please, if you could tell me top three things that would be useful to you, I would love to support you guys in delivering that. Thank you and thank you for being a listener. Take care, have a wonderful day, evening, wherever you are, whatever it is. Cheers, Adrian, over and out.